The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. The Celebrant Foundation and Institute, the preeminent school for ceremony and ritual careers, teaching people to become professional life cycle celebrants via its international online programs, proudly supports spirituality and health and essential conversations with Rabbi Rami. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. To learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Stephen Scholl. Stephen is an independent scholar of Islam and comparative religion who has lived and traveled extensively in the Middle East. He is the founding publisher of White Cloud Press and is the editor of several books, including the Peace Bible, Words from the Great Traditions, which he co-authored with the renowned Catholic theologian Hans Kung. He writes on religion and culture for newspapers and magazines and is a contributor to the Encyclopedia of Religion. His new book is Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, and he co-wrote it with Sam Deeb. Steve will be featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Stephen Scholl, welcome to Essential Conversations. It's so good to be here, Romy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Obviously, this is a timely topic. And uh, we'll, we'll you know, use the time we have to get not just into your book, but into your insights into what's going on in the world today that with regard to Islam and ISIS and all the rest of that. But let's start with your own religious and spiritual upbringing. How did you, what, what was your spiritual journey that led you to, to a study of Islam? Well, I, I grew up in a um, completely non-religious family. Uh, we weren't anti church or anti-religion. It just was irrelevant to the, the, our family's life. Uh, I, I often joke that we, we did sort of have a, a, a faith practice where we would gather every night around the altar and turn it on and watch it. Um, we, you know, we were, you know, kind of, uh, fathers knows best and leave it to beaver. I'm, I'm 61, so that kind of, you know, puts you back where I was growing up in, in, uh, Corvallis, Oregon. But in the 60s, I was listening to Bob Dylan and Van Morrison and Donovan, and they were my first spiritual teachers. And they, I, started, I just remember waking up one day saying, what is this God stuff all about? And to my parents' dismay, I started looking into religion and got to the point where I wanted to do it seriously. So I became a religious studies major. And one thing led to another. I ended up doing, first I, I was interested in India and China, but gradually I drifted back to the Mediterranean and the Middle East, was deeply inspired by the Sufis and the, the mystics of, of uh, the Jewish and Christian traditions and sort of found a home there. I'm not a practicing member of any faith tradition, but I enjoy and have a great you know, personal faith in, that's uniquely my, uh, my take on it. And I'd say that the Sufis have been the most influential personally for me. So I mean, it's really interesting that 
I mean, you sort of, in, in a sense, embody what's happening in the, I mean, it's global spiritual scene, if you, if you don't mind my putting it that way, mm-hmm. with the, the demographic of people much younger than us, but who are, you know, sometimes called the nuns, who I call the spiritually independent people who are open to the wisdom of every tradition, but not necessarily aligned with any specific tradition. Yeah, that's that's very much where I'm coming from. I have been for some, for, for a good chunk of my life. I understand that some people find that um, troubling and that those of us who are in the nuns category, I've heard the critique that we're just sort of dilettantes who pick and choose whatever we think is good and don't really have a commitment to a deeper practice, a deeper community. And, you know, there's that can happen. But I also know that many of the people that I, I encounter who are in that nuns category are deeply engaged in spiritual practice. And uh, they just have a difficult time with certain aspects of institutional and organized religion. And I think another part of it is that so much of the great faith traditions really are pre-modern in their formation and have had trouble moving into sort of a uh, postmodern world. And that's, for me, an element that is very difficult for me to to jump back in and say, I want to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist. I think partly because of my academic training, too, is that once you start asking questions from that perspective, you find that you ruffle feathers within certain traditions. Well, I think I think it's interesting the way you put it, that these religions do come from a pre-modern time. And to join one in you know, one to one degree or another, you're asked to abandon modernism and postmodernism and step back and embrace not just a, necessarily a pre-modern theology, but oftentimes a pre-modern lifestyle. So do you think, let's just sort of jump in then you know, with your book, Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam. To what extent do you think this pre-modern versus modern dynamic is playing itself out in the Islamic world today? Well, very much so. I just recently took a trip to Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Abu Dhabi, and Kuwait. And to me, that's what I saw with all three of those Abrahamic faiths, but with Islam as you know, specifically, there is there's this huge struggle of like, what is it from the seventh century, you know, or in the case of Judaism and Christianity even earlier, what stays relevant and what needs to be let go. So I mean this is what I see as as a real test for let me put it this way. Right now there's to use an old sounding statement, there's a battle for the soul of Islam taking place between progressives and conservatives, between those who want to hold on to the, the tradition fiercely. Fundamentalists come in every religious stripe and, and tradition. So, you know, that's what I see with happening with Islam as much as anything else. But it's a big issue, and I think that's what we see with ISIS and Al-Qaeda. These are the groups that are really holding on to a pre-modern perspective. I see it this way, and I borrow this from Karen Armstrong, that in fact, groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other fundamentalist extremist end times groups, whether they're Islamic, Christian, Jewish, or Hindu, are all pre-modern, and the problem is they are freaking out in the face of postmodern thinking, globalism, everything that makes the modern world worth living, the enlightenment, you know, from the from the European side starting in the seventeenth century. This is what they're fighting against, and they just cannot imagine living in a world that is open and free and democratic and, and uh liberal in any any sense of the word. They are desperate to bring the world either to an end, which I think is their ultimate hope uh, in a lot of these apocalyptic groups, that 
mm-hmm. really end times prophecy. They're either, they want to bring the world to an end, and in the process of doing so, at least bring it back to when the good old days. And I, and I think you see it in, in every religion. Uh, Islam is the most violent, at least from our perspective. I think you can see the similar kinds of, of terrorist violence in other parts of the world. Africa being one of them, where you find a lot of Christian tribal extremism going on. And and when you look at the global stage and you do so much traveling, do you see this as a global phenomenon or do you really see it as uniquely Islamic? I don't see it as uniquely Islamic. In fact, I think this is a a fantastic question and it's it's an important one because I think that in our contemporary context, Islam is, I think, unfairly painted with such a broad brushstroke of violence that there's a problem there. Robert Pape is a scholar from the University of Chicago who has done the most serious research on suicide terrorism. And what Pape's group, they're out of the University of Chicago, and they're good American academics who have no religious issues. I mean, I think they're probably all non-believers. But they're looking at this, and they what they found is that religion is not the primarily motivating factor in suicide terrorism. They looked at all the all these things. And so, just for example, Hezbollah, the Lebanese-based Shiite radical movement that has been involved in bombings and terrorist attacks. Pape's group tracked down all of their terrorist, their 41 terrorist attacks, and they found personal data for 38 of the terrorists. 27 were from leftist political groups, such as the Lebanese Communist Party or the Arab Socialist Union. Three were Christians, including a woman who was a secondary teacher. Eight were Islamic fundamentalists. So the vast majority of those terrorists were secularists, radical mm-hmm. secularists. And the other thing that Pape has found is that really what motivates these kinds of attacks is the presence of occupying forces. And this is part of this aspect that we never seem to really hear much about, is that the impact of colonialism and resource extraction from certain, you know, from our fears of influence and people in those countries take up arms against those who they feel are occupying their territory. So it's not simply a religious issue. It has to do with geopolitics. And just as an example with Hezbollah, most of those attacks occurred when the Israeli forces were occupying Lebanese territory. As soon as the, the Israelis pulled out, the terrorist attacks stopped. The paper is showing very clearly that there is a direct relationship to the presence of more of a political issue than religious. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Now, is Islam and is religion used in these situations? I mean, obviously, ISIS is the Islamic state, and so they wrap up their mission in religious language. And I don't want to downplay that either. But but I think the situation is much more complex. ISIS appeared within the debacle of the American invasion of Iraq and the decimation of the Sunni element within the Iraqi sphere. I just don't want to make things sound too simple that Islam is violent because I don't think Islam, I think the vast majority of Muslims are no more violent. The 
call for looking at Islam as being uniquely different than other religions, I think, is really wrong. I think human beings are violent, and I think that we have a lot of blood on our hands in this country. We've been at war almost every year since the founding of the country. We fight a lot, and we send our boys off to troops with prayers. It's a complex question. So you're right, and, and I agree that it's the situation is certainly more than a matter of religion, and it's geopolitical, and there's all kinds of elements that go into it. One of the things that troubles me, I'm not saying you do this, but when I listen to people talk about Islam, and I'm sure it would happen with other traditions as well, but when I listen to imams specifically talk about Islam, when they pick up on ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever they're talking about, they always speak in terms of, and today this was happening today, with the so-called Muslims. They dismiss these people. They say they're not really Muslims. They're not practicing Islam because Islam is a religion of peace and these people are people of war and therefore you can't really call them Muslims and any claim they have that this is Islamic is totally bogus. It bothers me because I understand religion and, and I think you do too, given what you said just a moment ago. I understand religion as a human creation regardless of the religion we're talking about, and regardless of any kind of revelatory claims that a religion may make, it's actually people who create the religion, who invent the theology, who write the scripture. And because people do that, the ideas about God and faith and the scriptures that uh, accompany them really reflect the best and the worst of which human beings are capable. So what's your sense? You know, in your book, Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, you really try to lay out the best the moral basis of Islam is what you're setting for. So give us a sense of what you think is the best of Islam, the moral basis. And we should, you know, sort of resonate with that as human beings. But then let me know what you think about this notion that the dark side is the dark side of humanity and therefore is also reflected in the faith and where that might reside in Islam, where the shadow side of Islam is. So you can react to the idea in general, but let's see if we can get some specifics on the table. Well, I think that is beautifully put, and I, I agree with where you're going here, and, and I'll try to lay a few ideas out. I think that the best of Islam is found in the life of Muhammad, but primarily in the Quran itself. And what we find in those two sources is a commitment to life and the protection of the innocents. Muhammad was an orphaned child. He was very vulnerable, and he was, from a very young age, very sensitive to injustice and oppression. And so, especially the early surahs, the first surahs of the Quran, they really are about this. I mean, he sounds like, you know, the great prophets of Israel crying out for justice. God does not want to see your sacrifices. He wants you to see you do the right thing. That's really what, that is to me the heart of Islam. And I think most, actually, the, the, over history, that's really been a, a prominent aspect of the Islamic tradition. Now, the dark side comes in, I think, because, you know, my, you know, my thought on this is that violence arises from within human beings. I live in Ashland, Oregon, home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and we still go see Shakespeare because he wrestles with the darkness at the heart of human nature. His works have never gone out of date because human nature doesn't seem to change very quickly. Technology changes, but our core issues of doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. Those are existential choices that each individual has to make. And this is what really what the Quran, there's so many beautiful verses in the Quran where what the Quran is saying is at every moment of your life, you're making a choice, make the right choice for goodness and for life and for justice. Now, historically, the darker side simply comes into play. It came into play during Muhammad's life and it came into play throughout Islamic history. So 
you know, a lot of Muslims have a very rosy picture of the glories of the, you know, the early times, but right from the beginning, the dark side appeared. And so you have really the split between the Sunnis and the Shia begins right at the death of Muhammad, where power and glory became motivating factors. And so that you have the Muslims fighting amongst themselves so that the, the grandchildren of the prophet who he held in his lap were killed and executed by Muslims who were fighting over powers. Right. I mean, that's when that political element gets into the religion. Yeah. And so this is, again, is, is I think Islam historically has gone down a particular path of traditionalism driven by authority through Sharia, the Islamic law, that has been very conservative and very not open to development and change as much as we have in since the 17th century with the Enlightenment in the West. Right. There is actually today, as we speak, a reform Muslim movement just declared yes. itself in Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days, which yes. really does try to say, look, there's another way to be Muslim. We're almost at a time, and I just want to pick up on this point you made just a moment ago. Before we get to the death of Muhammad and the split between Sunni and Shia, there is in the Quran two kinds of revelations, what scholars of Islam call the Meccan revelations, which are these beautiful prophetic calls for justice and the protection of the innocent and the powerless. And then there's the Medina ones where Muhammad has a different relationship with society. He's raising an army. He's defending his community militarily. And you get a different kind of revelation. Allah is all about universal justice and non, really sort of nonviolence peace in the Meccan revelations. And then suddenly he changes his mind when Muhammad is in Medina. And you see the same thing happening in, in the Hebrew Bible, where God can say, love your neighbor in one verse and, you know, wipe out every man, woman and child and cow with the Amalekites in another verse. Right. To me, as an academic, I see these as very convenient revelations. The prophet hears what the prophet wants to hear. I don't mean the prophet as in Muhammad, peace be upon him, though he's one of them. I guess meaning general prophets hear what they want to hear so that God always reinforces what they want to do. Do you think the Quran reflects the shadow side of Muhammad as well? Wow, that's a great question. I've never had it put quite like that. And I thank you for that. I think the Mecca and Medina periods are distinct and different from each other. Mecca was revelations at a time of persecution. And this is, you know, if I could say this is sort of the Gandhi phase of Muhammad, where he said, don't fight back, nonviolent resistance to the authorities. In Medina, things change. Islam was born within a violent society, and it reflects that society. There came a point where Muhammad said, well, the Quran says through Muhammad, <laughs> that either you need to organize and you need to defend yourselves and to take up arms. The thing that people often don't get is that the way in which he said to do that was incredibly humane and not and is less violent than almost anything I've seen in history. I mean, everything that ISIS is doing, everything Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are doing is in contradiction to Muhammad's method and message. You can only fight defensively. You cannot take out infrastructure. You cannot go after crops. You cannot kill civilians. Everything he said put up a barrier yeah. to war for peace. If you talk to people who are in ISIS, I think their thing is it's an interpretation. They don't see what we call non-combatants. They see them as all combatants. That is the huge thing where every, I mean, for example, when it says slay the unbelievers in the Quran, it means the pagan Meccans who were attacking them. It doesn't mean Christians. It doesn't mean Jews. Unbelievers is a very specific category, and it doesn't mean any, anybody. 
And again, this is one of the really important distinctions I think needs to be made these days, that what Muhammad said about just war was not picked up in the West until after World War II when uh, the Geneva Conventions were, you know, his teachings on a just war really are quite harmonious with Geneva Convention. My guest today was Stephen Scholl. He's the author of Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam. And you can learn more about Steve's work at whitecloudpress.com. Steve, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Rami, thank you. I don't think I've had any better questions ever presented. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Support for this show comes from the Celebrant Foundation and Institute, an international online professional training program for life cycle celebrants. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. To learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tafi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.